We are going to have fun on this Mother's Day getting to God's Word. It is going to be very interesting. Uh, here's the way we're going to start. Everyone in here is a theologian. It doesn't matter if you don't have a degree or not. In fact, I would say everyone on the planet is theologian. Everyone is constructing their view of God, who He is, who He's not, whether He exists, whether He doesn't exist. Even people that don't believe anything at all can tell you philosophically, perhaps even theologically, on why they hold to their view and their meaning of life. And this shaping of one's theology often happens when people are young, even when parents think, you know, I'm just going to let my kids make their own decisions. Even that's a shaping of the mind and the heart theologically. And it's our responsibility as parents to shape our kids, obviously for good or for bad. Right now I have a, a two-year-old, and he is into rocket ships. He is into big jets, and it's all he thinks about all the time is big jets. And so when we go around the room to pray... We say, okay, it's your turn to pray. And he's like, dear big jet. That's the pastor's kid. Praying to big jets. So, I'm like, no, we're going to shape this. We're going to turn this a different direction. And we're going to instruct and teach about who God is and what he's all about. And it is the responsibility, and I'm going to try to exhort you, encourage you today as parents as maybe some people in here who don't have kids, maybe you instruct kids, or maybe, well, probably half of you are probably single. I'm even going to exhort you to get ready. And you can be doing stuff right now to get ready to shape a child's heart and a child's mind in line with the Word of God. And this is what we want to see happen, right, as parents. We want to see our kids love Jesus. And when they have problems or they get into a bind and as they're growing up, they will find themselves coming back to God and His Word. And they'll say, you know what? God, you're reliable. God, you are trustworthy. God, you are faithful. And that's what we want to see. We want our, our kids trusting in the faithfulness and reliability of God. But often before that's going to happen, parents, future parents, you must be convinced as well. You must be convinced that God is reliable. You must be convinced that God is faithful. Because if you're not convinced, don't play this VBS Sunday school go to church games with your kids. Because you're not trusting in the Lord and His faithfulness. And if you're not actually believing God's going to come through for you, it's not going to go so well for your kids. About a week ago, I was at a conference. And there's a lot going on at this conference. So basically, it was a conference instructing parents on how to raise kids. And so I'm going to save you the conference fee and all that time, and I'm going to give you the number one parenting tip. Throw the rest of the tips out. Keep this one. Write it down. Here you go. Number one parenting tip. It looks like this. The best thing you can do for your kids is nurture your life and walk with the Lord. The best thing you can do for your kids is nurture your life, and walk with the Lord. I know we get hung up on a lot of stuff and techniques and principles, how we're we going to raise our kids, but the best thing you can do, mom and dad, is walk with Jesus. 
The best thing you can do, single person, before you get married one day and perhaps have a kid, walk with the Lord right now. That has an impact upon future generations. So you're not just mouthing words. You actually are relying upon the Lord and His faithfulness. And that's what we want. We want to be people who find God to be reliable for those who turn to Him in faith. We want to be people who rely upon the Lord for those who turn to Him in faith. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Romans chapter 9. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. I guarantee you, no one has ever preached a Mother's Day sermon on Romans chapter 9. <laughs> and don't think that I was just thinking of Mother's Day and I thought, Romans 9. Now we're going to the book of Romans and it just so happens in God's providence and sovereignty that it falls on Mother's Day. So hey, let's just stick with the text, all right? There's some moms in this text. There's some kids in this text. Interesting applications, but we will see it here in a moment. We're coming off of Romans 8. And Romans 8 is by far, many people believe it's the best chapter in the Bible. I mean, it's just the best promises and the best joys. And last week we had our intern, Ryan, preach it with so much joy. And I'm glad he preached last week because he is so full of joy and happiness. And I'm just kind of grumpy. And so it was perfect for him to just bring this text. It wasn't it great? It was just joy and happiness. He, He smiled. It was awesome. Think about all the great promises we have in Romans 8. Let's just back up with the promises. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit, given life and the ability to obey. Adoption as children of God. Future resurrection bodies in glory. God working all things for our good. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. These are great promises in Romans chapter 8. But now we're coming to 9. And nine is going to introduce attention. And it goes like this. How do you know God is going to keep all those promises? How do you know? How can you be sure? Here's some more tension. This is what makes it really, really tense. You ready for this? God made all these great promises to Israel in the past, like the ones I just mentioned. But now the people experiencing those promises are primarily Gentiles, not Jews. And so if God didn't keep his promise to the Jews, Israel, how do you know he's going to keep his promise to the church? I have a feeling that some of you are not are feeling this tension. Let me just put it to you in terms like this, all right? I have a son, and I say, okay, son, on Christmas, I'm going to give you a bike. He's all pumped, excited. Christmas comes, and I give the bike to another son. Now you're going, yeah, I get that. That's the tension, right? All these great promises were made to Israel, and now the church is experiencing all these great blessings. And so if God doesn't, did he come through on his promises to Israel? And if he didn't come through on his promises to Israel, how do we know he's going to come through on his promises to the church? Do you feel the tension? You should. This is the issue that Paul addresses in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. And the question is this, did God's promises to Israel fail? 
And he's going to make an argument. You have to stick with us in the next six weeks. This is a long argument. And if you get lost in the argument, you're going to think that these three chapters are about just this thing. But it's a, a lot's going on here. So let me, let me put up the argument where he's going. Chapter, chapter 9, part 1. He's going to explain that God does not elect everyone within Israel for salvation, but only a remnant. And when we come to chapter 10, we're going to see Israel is responsible for failing to believe in the Messiah. And then when we come to part 3, we're going to see that God is still saving some Jews today, and there will be a greater and gathering in the future. Now, that is a big sweep of three chapters. That is a significant argument. And I know you love Romans, but don't skip these chapters. They're there for a reason. So stick with me today. This is not easy going, all right? We're going to start with Paul's heart for Israel. Let's jump in. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So Paul is acknowledging the reality. Most Jews of his day are not following Jesus. He's acknowledging that reality. And Paul's saying that bothers him so much that he is willing to bear the wrath of God and go to hell forever so that his fellow Jews could be saved. Does that remind you of anybody in the Old Testament? Remember remember Moses in the Old Testament where God was going to pour out his wrath upon Israel and Moses intercede and he wanted to take the brunt of the punishment so God would have mercy. Remember Moses said this in Exodus chapter 32, 32 and 33. He says, but now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. What God is saying is that, Sorry, Moses, whoever sins, they're going to bear the brunt of my wrath. Sorry, Paul, you can't bear the wrath of someone else. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So what we're seeing here is Paul's heart for those who don't know Jesus Christ. And it should be our heart as well. And parents, as you are raising the next generation of people to believe and trust in the reliability of God, do your kids see that you have a heart for those who don't know Jesus? Does it make you sad about people who don't know Jesus Christ? Do your kids see you getting more upset and more disappointed and more sad because your favorite team loses? Or do they see you get more upset and more sad over people who don't know Christ? I mean, just be honest. Your your kids are watching you. They're seeing that you're so into sports and your team and people without Jesus, like, "Ah, whatever. You're raising theologians. You're shaping minds and hearts. We want to have hearts for those who don't know Christ. Now, Paul is going to explain who these people are, these these Jews within Israel. So let's keep our head in the text and just follow along here to see who he's talking about, starting in verse 4 through 5. 
He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. So God adopted the Jews, Israel, among all the nations, picked them to be his own. To them belong the glory. Remember, he manifested his presence to them at the tabernacle and the temple. To them belong the covenants. He made these covenants with them to bless and save them. To them belong the giving of the law. He gave them his word to guide and teach them. To them belong the worship. They worshipped him and they were enabled to worship him. To them belong the promises, the promises of salvation. Keep going. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he continues on. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. So to top it off, not only do all these great blessings come to Israel, but the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came from Israel. And Paul says the Messiah, Jesus, is God. So he finishes off with worship. And yet his heart is broken over his people who are not acknowledging the Messiah. What is the deal? What has gone wrong? Now Paul's going to move to his thesis, his whole point of chapters 9, 10, and 11. If you want to know what the point of three chapters are, it's right there in verse 6. Look at the thesis. Feel free to underline it. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word, God's promise of salvation has not failed to save his people. God is reliable and he is faithful. And what Paul is going to do, he's going to defend this thesis throughout the chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the first part of his argument is going to be, God does not elect every single person within Israel to salvation. I'm just going to touch on the controversial things this week. Next week will be the most controversial sermon I've ever given. And I know some of you are going to get stirred up. Because I know some of you love chapter 9 because it focuses on the sovereignty of God. So for those of you from a particular theological background, hooray, hooray for chapter 9. Others will go, I'm freaking out. And then we come to chapter 10. Those of you from a different theological perspective will go, yes, hooray, hooray for chapter 10. It's awesome. Others will go, ah, what's the big deal? Guess what? Both are there. So if you're freaking out this week, you probably won't the next week. If you're not freaking out today, you may another week. So let's just all stay together, believe God's word, and what it is saying. Do you understand what we're arguing today? Just so I'm making sure you're freaking out rightly. Paul is arguing that the reason why all of Israel is not saved is because God picked some for salvation and he didn't pick others. You're like, yikes. Now you're freaking out. All right, you with me? Now you see it. Well, let's go through it and see what he is saying. Verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This means there's a difference between the nation of Israel and the true Israel, those who are chosen by God. God did not choose every person within Israel to be saved. He always had a remnant. You know that word remnant? A portion to be saved in the Old Testament. And those are his elect. And he illustrates the point starting in verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Physical descent does not make one a child of God. 
Physical descent does not make one a child of God. Do you want proof? Here's proof. God made this great promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, guess what? You can have a child. It's going to be a child of the promise. And boom, all these blessings and all these many kids are going to come. And I know you're old and everything, but it's going to be awesome. You and Sarah are going to have this great child. All these promises. As much as the stars and the sand and the sea, it's going to be great. And Abraham's like, I have an idea. Sarah has this handmaiden. Her name is Hagar. She's from Egypt. Let's go have a child together, and we'll name him Ishmael. And so that was the plan. But God's like, nope. That is not a fulfillment of the promise because God said the promise is going to come from Abraham and Sarah. As it says here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, which means that it was going to be through Isaac will be fulfilled the descendants of the covenant and who would come? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, which proves the main point which we see in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. God chose Isaac, the child of the promise, over Ishmael, the child of the flesh. So he still chooses children of the promise, that is, Jews who are saved through believing in Jesus, over children of the flesh. Those are Jews who are just physically descended from Israel, but they do not believe in Jesus. And kind of summarize it for you, because I know we're getting kind of tricky. This is getting kind of hard. It's about promise, not biology. It's about grace, not race. It's about promise, not biology. It's about grace and not race. And to bring it to us here today, and speaking to the Christian parents in here, just because a child is born into a Christian family does not mean that they are going to be Christian. I know that's controversial, right? See, what we don't want to do as parents is say, look, I'm a believer in Jesus. Boom, you are too. Because the reality is God has no grandchildren, right? He only has children. And so what is going to determine whether our children are going to follow Jesus? Now, if you want to get really controversial, you'll just say, well, Chapter 9, is God going to elect them to salvation or not? And you go, okay, that's part of the argument, and it's there. But chapter 10 also says that there is this human responsibility called faith that they must exercise to put their faith in Jesus Christ. So we can talk about how those go together at another time. But the reality is chapter 9 talks about election. Chapter 10 talks about faith. And one does not nullify the other. The professor I had this summer uh, teaching on Romans was Douglas Moo. He put it like this. Maybe this will help you, maybe not. He says, divine sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation stand in some tension with one another. Yes, wouldn't you agree? But they're not logically contradictory. The Bible teaches both. Chapter 9 is there, chapter 10 is there. How they fit together is never really explained. But I tell you what, if you try to dismiss one or dismiss the other, you're not going to make a lot of sense. Both are there consistently throughout the Bible. God's sovereign control and election and human responsibility. So that means I can say to you this morning, if you are not a follower of Jesus, do not sit back and say, 
Uh, well, pastor, I guess I must not be one of the elect. So it's all God's fault for not picking me. So I'm not one of the elect, so just keep on preaching. I'm not going to hear you because I'm not one of the elect. No, no, no. The Bible says this. Jesus Christ died for sinners. Are you a sinner? Yes. He was buried and he rose again three days later. And the good news that goes to you as a sinner, you can repent of your sins and put your faith, you can exercise your faith, put your trust in Jesus, and the Bible says that you will be forgiven. And so as we're raising kids, we want to encourage them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't want to tuck them into bed and say, hey, hey son, did you know if you're elect or not? I mean, we don't want to do that. We really mess them up. We want to talk to them about putting their trust in Jesus Christ. And I would say as parents, raising your kids in the Lord should be the most important thing in your life. If there's something more important than you've seen your kids come to Jesus and keep following Jesus, then you need to rearrange your priorities. It should be the most important thing. Your heart, your mind, everything in it should be about seeing your kids follow Jesus. And it's emotional. About a year ago, I was baptizing my oldest. Um, my oldest is a son. And as a pastor, I baptize people like this. Okay, it goes like this. Here's the motions. I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the way it works. Now, for those of you who are at this baptism with my son, it didn't go so well. He got there, and I froze because I was getting all emotional. And I start to break down, and none of the words would come out of my mouth, and I'm losing it. And he's like, Dad, just go! And I'm like, <laughs> I, it looked like I was laughing, I couldn't, and he's like, Dad, just do it! And, and I finally got it out, but I was so emotional. And so, two weeks ago, I was baptizing my oldest daughter. And I, and I said, I said, are you nervous about baptism? She said, I, I'm just nervous you're going to lose it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to hold it together. I didn't, I, I was breaking up inside. I'm like, let's get it over with. Because it's emotional, right? Because we want our kids to follow Jesus. But the same holds when our kids don't follow Jesus. It's just something is emotional. Because we really want them, no matter what age they are, to follow Christ. Because there's great emotion that we want to make that our priority to see them follow Jesus Christ. They don't just say, I'm a Christian, you must be a Christian too. No, we want to see them trust Christ themselves. He's reliable, he's faithful to you. He died for a sinner like you, trust him. Now, if you've been following the logic at all in Romans so far, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, uh, at this point in the argument, there is, should be some pushback. For those of you who've been paying attention, should push back right now. And a, a, a Jewish person that is part of this fictional argument that he's making would push back as well. They would say, ah, Paul, we got you. God picked Isaac and he didn't pick uh, Ishmael because Ishmael was not full-blown Israelite. Did you pick up on that? Because Ishmael's mama is an Egyptian. So, of course, he's going to pick Isaac over Ishmael because Isaac full-blown Israelite. And Paul's like, I knew you would say that. <laughs> and so he has another argument. And Paul's argument is going to go like this. Let me tell you a story about Isaac 
and his wife. And they were both Israelites. And they had a set of twins. And before the twins were even born, before they did anything good or bad, God picked one and not the other. Let's look at it. Let's look at it. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So here comes Isaac back into play again. And not every child of Isaac is going to be saved. And here's the proof. His wife, Rebecca, conceived twins, and it, we are told here, before they were born, and did you see it? And had done anything either good or bad, God chose Jacob over Esau. In fact, it says, the older will serve the younger. You're like, what does that even mean? Well, in this culture, the older son received the blessings, he received the inheritance, and would take the place as the father, as a leader of the family. But God reversed the custom And he did not choose Esau, but he chose Jacob instead. And to take it even further, we have this quote from Malachi that comes along many years later. And the context of Malachi is the descendants of uh, Jacob, which would be the Jews, and the descendants of Esau, which would be the Edomites, are feuding. And in this context, God gives this word of reassurance to the Jews. And he said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we can stop here for a moment. Some people kind of take this text and they, they're un- uncomfortable with kind of some of the things that it's, are said in this text. And they say, well, what's happening is that we're talking about nations and we're not talking about individuals. But the reality is that Paul takes nations from Malachi and he applies it to individuals, Jacob and Esau. And he says before one was even born, God picked one and not the other. And the reason why he did this is that so God's purpose in election might stand. So it would be based upon good works because Jacob was not, oh, remember Jacob, the deceiver? And it's not based upon a future faith. It's based upon God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau and so that his purpose in election might continue. Now, at this point, I know there's objections. Because we're back to this fairness issue. It's not fair that God would pick one over another. At least he's got to have a reason for why he picked Jacob over Esau. At least he could say that Jacob was a better person than Esau, which he wasn't. At least he could say that he, he saw Jacob's faith and Esau didn't have faith, but it doesn't say that either. It just says that he picked one and not the other. In fact, it says he loved one and, and hated the other. And you go, well, that is not fair. That is not fair. That is not fair. And I say, come back next week, come back next week, come back next week. Because that's what we're going to talk about. Is this fair? Why would God do it this way? What's he doing? But this week, what I want to encourage you is to focus on the reality. Why should he pick anybody? Why should he have mercy on anybody? And for those of you who are in Jesus Christ right now, he had mercy on you. And I want to tell you this. If you're in Christ right now, God is locked in on you. His mercy is locked in on you. His love is locked on in you. His grace is locked in on you. This past week, I was locked in on my four-year-old daughter. And I gave her my undivided attention and heart for a whole ten minutes. (laughs) We were in the front yard. It was just the two of us. I stopped fiddling with my cell phone. 
I stopped trying to solve all the world's problems. I stopped reading. I stopped everything. And for 10 minutes, I was focused on her, and she knew it. She was walking around the yard, just the two of us. She was, uh, she was just playing a game. I don't even know what she was doing. She was picking up sticks, and she was calling them hot dogs. <laughs> no, I don't know what that means. And, but she's happy. She's having fun. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I am locked in on you, little girl. And I will do anything for you. I love you. I'm going to be there for you. And then the 10 minutes was over. That's about as good as I get. But not God. If you're in Christ, he's locked in on you. He's watching you play your little hot dog game too, right? He sees your silliness. And yet he's still locked in on you. And he knows the hard stuff you're going through right now. He knows that you can barely keep it together right now. And yet, he's there for you. He's reliable. And he's faithful. And just as God's promises to Israel have not failed, his promises to you have not failed either. He is locked in on you in love. And until, I'm going to use this word, I'm going to use the word feelings, until you feel that, you won't pass it on to the next generation. Until you actually feel, not all the time, but until you feel and know in your head and in your heart and you feel in your gut that God has locked in on you and he loves you and his mercy is grace for you. He's not going to leave you nor forsake you until you experience that in the hard times. It's going to be hard to pass it on. That's why the number one thing you can do for your kids is nurture your life and your walk with the Lord and know how much he loves you. My brothers and sisters, those of us who have kids with us right now, they're not going to be there much longer. I know some of you, you think that you're never going to get out of the diaper phase. I feel that at times. Never going to get out of this. Like you're going to be in the diaper phase forever. But eventually, your kids will probably leave. Probably. <laughs> they may come back, but they're going to leave again. But eventually, they're going to leave. What are you doing with them now? I was reading a story this week, of all people, by the actor Rob Lowe. He wrote some book. And an excerpt from his book, if you don't know who he is, it's okay. An excerpt from his book talking about his two boys. And he talks about the emotion that he didn't anticipate of sending his oldest son off to college. So he's in the house, and he's getting his son ready, of course in Malibu, you know, Malibu. So he's getting his son ready to go to school in the Northeast, and he's losing it. He's with his son, and he has to go run into the other room and cry, cry, cry. And he comes back, tries to hold it together for his son. And he's losing him, because I'm losing my son. He's going away, I'm not going to see him. And he's like, I'm losing my best friend. So then he gets on the plane with him, and he puts on his sunglasses, because <laughs> he gives him the only way to see him crying. And then he goes to his son's dorm room. He's helping him unpack, and he's running into the other room because he's still crying. <laughs> he comes back, and his son's like, Dad, it's okay if tonight I stay with you and Mom in the hotel. He's like, he's losing it again. <laughs> yeah, of course you can stay with me. And see, that day's coming. And for some of you, you might not cry at all. <laughs> You're like, get out of here, kids. <laughs> 
<laughs> but, but probably most of you are like, man, there's something going on here. That's why right now is the time to invest in your kids. And the best thing you can do for them is walk with the Lord yourself and let that spill out, spill out, spill out. So when they leave, they're going to do the same thing. And that's what we want. Our kids walking and trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much that even some things we don't understand in the Bible, some things that are hard to grasp, that you love us. And your mercy and your grace are there for us. It's good to know that you are locked in on us in love. And may we believe that, trust you, feel it in our gut, know it in our hearts, believe it in our minds, and turn to you time and time again. And Lord, we want to pray for our kids. We want to pray for our future kids. We want them to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. And for those of us who have kids who are not following Jesus right now, Lord, please intervene in their life. Please awaken them. Please bring them to you to see the importance of trusting you and relying upon you. And if we've done things to mess them up, which I'm sure we have, please intervene in grace and mercy and turn it around, bring it, bring it into a moment of redemption and grace. But we love you. We thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.